Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. Hello, friend. So grateful you decided to spend some time with us. It's much appreciated. I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker's here. You can reach us at MurdochPodcast.com, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. And we've got a lot of emails and Facebook comments about the last episode and the question of the timing and the family dinner. And you have more things you found out from John Marvin. Just a lot of questions. It's been slightly overwhelming. So if we overlooked anything, please reach back out. We're getting to you as quickly as we can. We will also be talking to our legal analyst, John Snyder, in this episode uh, about different things that have come up involving the trial that's coming up with Alec. And also, we're going to talk about Alec's alleged partner in crime, Russell Lafitte, the banker. We'll get to all those details soon, too. But what do we want to start with, Seton? We wanted to start off with a revisit of the 911 call. Our producer, Dwayne, has been going through it, coming over it, and we just thought what he found was interesting, and we should start with that. We want to uh, dive into the 911 call that Alec made the night Maggie and Paul were murdered, and our producer, Dwayne, got really deep into this thing, and you enhanced some of the call. Explain what that means. Okay, so there's a lot of mumbling going mm -hmm. on in the background of the 911 call. And you, Matt, have been, been getting emails about yep. people are hearing this, people are hearing yes. that. So that, that is what kind of, you know, inspired me to really go and just sit and listen. Mm -hmm. Now, I have no forensic tools, people. Right. All right. I'm just, I'm just a regular studio guy with, with some audio tools. Right. Um, and I'm sitting listening to different parts. And the first part that I heard was around the, the 10 second mark. Okay. All right. So I just isolated it. I enhanced certain parts just to hear what Alec is saying in the background. Mm -hmm. All right. We're not going to tell you what Dwayne hears or what others have heard. We want you to hear it first. Yes. And then you decide, and then we will tell you what they hear, and then hear it again. Okay. So hit that clip, and you're going to hear it two or three times in a row. Yeah. I'm just going to rack it twice. Right. Yeah. Cool. Okay. You said forty one, forty seven mobile road analysis. <laughs> you said 4147 Moselle Road in Allison? Okay, you said 4147 Moselle Road in Allison? You said 4147 Moselle Road in Allison? Okay, you said 4147 Moselle Road in Allison? 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 from Alec saying, I am sorry. Right. Who are you apologizing to? Now, is, is it possible, though, he's saying, the, the 911 operator believes he's saying, sorry, like, I didn't understand you, like, pardon me, but Yeah, but doesn't after he up. says, I'm sorry, he says, sir, right. right, asking a question, like, to repeat it. Yeah, yeah. All right? That's, that's what I hear. 
And you have to assume law enforcement is going over these same 911 calls with sure. a fine tooth comb. And let somebody, a sound engineer, heard some of the same stuff you're saying and said, I wish I could get a, like an HD clear version, but that doesn't exist. We we all wish, but 911 calls are the worst recordings yeah. in, in the world. They're all muffled. Okay. <laughs> so now see if you hear him saying, Alex saying sorry, uh, kind of over the, they, they both talk over each other a little bit. So let's listen to it again with what Dwayne thinks he hears in mind. Okay, you said 40 on 47 Mobile Road in Allison. You said 4147 Mobile Road in Allison. Okay, you said 40 on 47 Mobile Road in Allison. You said 4147 Mobile Road in Allison. Okay, so let's move to a minute 22 into the call. Dwayne enhanced it as best he could. So, so this part is really, really bad. Uh, the 911 operator is very loud compared to, to Alec mm-hmm. uh, volume. It's a really bad recording. Let me just say that. Yeah. But there are parts where Alec is mumbling again that I was able to, to raise a little bit, you know, and get it up to a decent audible level. This one, I'm not really going to say what I hear because I don't want to influence... You know, I don't want to influence yes. your, your, your thoughts. Okay. All right. So, so we give just it a listen to see yeah, what I'll just you hear. Rack it twice. He speaks a little bit just before the 911 operator, and then he speaks again underneath the 911 operator. So you kind of have to listen below what mm-hmm. she's saying. That's okay. the best way to describe it. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Did you see anyone? Okay. Is he breathing at all? Okay. And did you see anyone? Okay. Is he breathing at all? Okay. And did you see anyone? Okay. Is he breathing at all? So I sent this to some friends independently, not giving them what they thought. And I would definitely recommend listening to this with some earbuds. Don't try to listen to it in your car because you really have to listen. Intensely. Closely. You got to listen closely. Uh, Let's, this is one that's been talked about in emails to us and Facebook comments and others is about the two minute and 10 second mark. Uh, Do we want to say what people think they hear? It's been widely reported in social media. People have been talking about this. So I say we say it, listen to it again. We're not saying for sure that's what it's saying, but. It's just been talked about so much, and we've gotten a ton of questions about it. They, the people that claim they hear something, believe Alex says, for God's sake, Paul, why did you have to get involved? Let's hear it. Okay, and was anyone else supposed to be at your house? No, ma'am. Okay, and was anyone else supposed to be at your house? No, ma'am. Okay, and was anyone else supposed to be at your house? No, ma'am. Okay, so this is not enhanced. This is straight off the uh, 911 call files. I do not hear it. I do. And But here, here's the issue, though. If the call is being made at 10.07, Paul was killed around between 9, 9.30. It's not like he would be reacting like, Paul, why'd you have to get involved if he's had an hour to stew on it? 
How about that theory? Good point. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, okay. We don't know. Definitely interesting to listen to these calls with a fresh set of ears, given the latest indictments against Alec. Okay, let's uh, move over to another grand jury indictment, a federal grand jury indictment. John Monk in the state had a good article about this. Uh, the former Hampton banker, Russell Lafitte, who we've been hearing about over the last few months, was indicted on various counts, bank, wire fraud, in connection with alleged schemes by disbarred attorney Alec Murdoch to misappropriate millions of dollars, supposedly under bank supervision. And in the indictment, they talk about this conspiracy. They don't name Murdoch, but they call him a bank customer. And we're pretty sure we know who that is. And uh, Palmetto State Bank in Hampton County was a tool for laundering money, is what the indictment says. 17 pages. Uh, there are details in what they did. The indictment says, with the stolen money, this is a quote from the Monk article, with the stolen money, Murdoch and Lafitte sent money to relatives and their own checking accounts and paid off loans and bills. Uh, they say in the federal indictment, the federal indictment says Lafitte and Murdoch took advantage of six conservatorships over the years, siphoning out money out of one, the deadline approaches, kind of moving money around is what happened. But the indictment charges Lafitte with conspiracy to commit wire fraud and bank fraud, wire fraud, bank fraud, misapplication of bank funds, a maximum of 30 years in prison on each charge. Now, his attorney says they're going to vigorously fight this. There's a bunch of irregularities. And remember, Lafitte is a generational banker there. He's uh, on the, he was on the board of directors. Uh, members of the Lafitte family are on the board of directors. And Lafitte's under investigation, still state authorities. But one of the irregularities concerned a $750,000 commercial loan at a favorable interest rate that Lafitte made to Murdoch July 2021, six weeks after Murdoch's wife and son were slain. It was supposed to be repairs for Murdoch's beach house. It lays out more of the money schemes. Lafitte, they say, made just under 400000 in fees for serving as conservator and personal representative in matters of uh, Murdoch's money. They routed 634000 to people identified as HPY and NT. Don't know who they are yet. Um, there's a $10,000 deposit for Murdoch's late wife, Maggie. There's money to Fleet's father to pay off a personal loan, $100,000. Uh, 329000 to Murdoch's late father. 4000 to make loan payments for Murdoch's boat. Uh, and it goes on and on from there. 75000 to Murdoch's father in another case. 7500 to Murdoch's wife. And it just, there's, there's other checks that were written for who knows what, but they're just, that's just some of the tip of uh, the iceberg of that 17 page indictment. And it is, I'm sure making Russell Lafitte flip and tell whatever he needs to be told. I'm sure the federal, the feds are getting him to spill on all kinds of people that might've been involved. Well, one thing else I wanted to mention, Eric Bland and Ronnie Richter, you know, were helping the Satterfield family recover their money. Uh, they are representing these young girls who are now adults, but as two young girls received a large settlement in an 05 death of their mother and brother in a tragic rollover accident. The money was entrusted to Palmetto State Bank under Lafitte's care, 
And the quote is, as the years ensued, the girls viewed Russell Lafitte as a father figure and trusted him to navigate the waters ahead for them and to guide them. It is difficult to express the emotions and disappointments of learning years later that those who had sworn to protect the Plylers chose instead to prey upon them. And that is from Eric Bland. And so that's just Horrible. awful. Horrible. And we bring in our legal analyst. He was a former district attorney and a former defense attorney, both sides of the aisle there. He is John Snyder. Hello, John. Hey, guys. How are you today? We are well. Thank you for taking some time on your vacation to uh, chat with us. I do have a uh, comment from uh, Facebook from FL Law, so maybe they're an attorney, too. It says, more John Snyder, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> Five stars for John Snyder. He brings the knowledge and the charisma. Let's get to it. That's Stephen. fantastic. And that's an unpaid endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to start off with what just broke. I haven't seen this motion, but it's been reported by Fitz News that Judge Newman has denied the gag order in Alec Murdoch's murder trial. And when I attended the bond hearing, both defense and prosecution had agreed upon a gag order. So since the defense and prosecution had both agreed on this, I was wanted to find out from you if this was unusual for a judge to deny something when both sides agreed. No, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about a judge is they have the ability to exercise their best judgment. It actually happens all the time where the, the state and the defense counsel will go to the judge and say, here's what we're about to do. And the judge will say, you may be about to do that, but not in my courtroom. And, and so a judge here is basically saying, y'all can make any agreements you want. You can have any conversations you want, but I'm going to apply the law to the facts of this case and, and make decisions. And, and so I, I think this is the right move, uh, one, and two, a judge can you know, kind of do what they want. Okay, if, if there is a winner in this decision other than the public— do you think either side is helped by this ruling? I think what it does is it communicates to everyone involved in the case that this is not anybody special in the eyes of the law okay. and that this judge is going to handle this case just like he or she would in any other case. And that's, and that's what part of why we're so fascinated by this case is the fact that the people involved have used privilege, position, and connections to get treatment that the regular people of the low country could not get. And so the judge is, is communicating to the world with this ruling that this guy's no different than any other defendant. Uh, now, from a strategic standpoint, uh, assuming the evidence lines up with what is in the indictment, that will probably put pressure on the defense to reach a plea uh, sooner rather than later. Hmm. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Yeah, well, so should we talk about the potential of 
uh, capital punishment being put on the table? When will we see that? So now the judge has ruled on kind of this key element of the process that it's going to be open to everyone. The next couple of stages of the trial will involve the state's attorney declaring whether or not they're going to seek the death penalty. And so when you review the South Carolina statute, one of the factors that allows the state to pursue it is when one, two murders are committed within the same transactional of a crime. And so here we have both his son and his wife being shot at the same time with different weapons. That is clearly going to be enough in any other case for the death penalty to be sought and surely in this case. Wow. So we did have a listener question and they asked about Harputlian representing Alec since he had previously represented Paul in the boating accident where Mallory Beach was killed and wondered if this was a conflict of interest. I, I think it's a, it's a conflict of interest that, you know, since Paul is dead, I don't think Harputlian knows anything that would be used against yeah, Paul's character or other. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. So instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. The reason we have this rule is like, okay, I know that somebody has a really bad drinking habit, let's say. I would be, it would be hard for me to then representing someone when it was a bar fight, right? Because I, I know that this, this guy drank a lot and I would use that against him. Right. You don't have that in this case. This is In this case, it's, there's no knowledge that Harputlian would have of Paul that would be used in this case or to challenge Paul's character or anything related to you know, Paul's conduct or anything he would know from those prior criminal representations of Paul. Now, I have a question about where the money might be coming from to be paying Harputlian and his gang and the experts that they're going to have to pay. And as we know, in any case, the state has basically unlimited funds, and the defense in, in cases of people without means is at a disadvantage many times. Alec is supposedly broke. And if someone's paying for it, that's someone else. Does the will the 
uh, who's paying for it? Is that public? Will that be public knowledge? If not, um, do the people who are in charge of Alex money have to approve of any money that goes towards his legal fees on this murder defense? So that's kind of a, I'd say that's two, two different subjects in one. So the first question is, we won't know necessarily who's paying his legal bills. And it could be that Harpootlian and Griffin are, are, are doing this for pro bono service. They're doing this for somebody that's been their friend. But to pay the legal bills, eventually those bills would be submitted to the receiver that's been appointed over his financial affairs. So they're the attorneys in charge of his financial affairs. Harpootlian gives him a, a bill, and then they decide if they can pay it and where Harpootlian goes in line of all the people that want money. That, that's correct. So if it is found that legal fees were paid with ill-gotten means, does that mean the legal fees will have to be paid back? Oh, that is, that is a source of funds uh, question. And the, the law is a little bit in flux on that because if, if the, the attorney receiving the funds had no basis or reason to think that they were being paid through ill-gotten gains, probably not. But if it turns out they, they knew, or even if Alex said to them at some point, hey, <laughs> I got this money from one of these settlements that I never paid out to the actual victims – that that might change it, but I I feel like in this case, as guilty as the indictments make him sound, those lawyers aren't going to do anything to to jeopardize their legal careers and their representation. So at Alex Bond hearing, the AG's office hinted that the financial crimes may provide a motive for the murders of Maggie and Paul. So when I thought about this, does this mean that the financial crimes cases will be on hold until after the murder case is done? That's a that's a great question. And that's something that the all of the prosecutors handling the different cases will coordinate in. They, they may file a motion for joinder where, you you know, you prove the financial crimes and then, you know, you, you lead into why the murders occurred. You might prove the financial crimes first, get your convictions so that the so that he's a higher record level for sentencing, which gets you to the aggravating factors for the death penalty more quickly. So you're going to see some high level uh, strategy with with the law enforcement and prosecutors and deciding which cases to move forward on first. And I also want to point out something that you told us uh, last week or the week before was that you don't need a motive to get conviction for murder. That's right. Motive is something that's fun for TV and, and obviously just our human nature of wanting to have sense of things. We want to know why, but that's not a requirement for the state. The, the state's got to prove the elements uh, of the crime and, and motive is not one of the elements that they have to prove. We've mentioned this in the past. Let's explain the Slayer statute and how this may come into play. So in, in a civil case, if a party is an, an heir, but they are the person responsible for the death of the person that they were inheriting from, they are not allowed to recover any financial remuneration or any part of the estate. And so 
their portion of the estate that they would be an heir to passes to the next person uh, in in line pursuant to the statutes. Would be Buster. And you've been telling us about the Slayer thing for months, but we didn't really have a reason to put it on. You were on, on, on top of this thing. And Mark Tinsley commented that, you know, they sued Buster too in the boat crash. So he believes that they will get what they need even with the Slayer statute comes into play. I think you said at one time, though, the percentage of Buster's fault in this isn't necessarily the same as Alex, right? Yeah. So, so in in the in the civil case, if let's say that Alec was twenty percent liable for for the the beach accident and all that, then that twenty percent won't be there for Tinsley to recover from. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean you know it doesn't mean they won't recover. It doesn't mean insurance companies won't pay out. It right. just means that. Any any other money that would have gone to Alec as a result of Maggie and Paul's death is not available to him to pay his legal bills or anything like that. And so that money would, would, would I guess, at this point go to Buster, depending on how the estate's set up. So we had a few questions from listeners about the venue and also whether Judge Newman will preside over the case. Uh, do you have any in- insight on this? I think at this point, because he's ruling on these majorly important motions, I think he's going to handle the case the whole way through. That doesn't mean it won't be tried in a different county, but he's definitely going to be the judge presiding over the matter. I would imagine it's hard because if you do a change of venue, there's nobody in the low country. There's not a county in the low country that's less aware of this than others, I would imagine. I mean, you, the jury pool would be different, I guess. Well, that, yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. It, it, the jury pool that they need because of the how much attention this case has gotten is gigantic, and so in a in a county of fifteen thousand, that may not be the best spot for uh, your jury pool. Right, like if you went to, to the, you know, over to Charleston or somewhere, there's a lot more population. One one quick thing, I saw this from Eric Bland in a article that was written by Michael Dewitt. That if Murdoch is convicted of their murders, this could open him up to wrongful death lawsuits from his brothers on behalf of Maggie and Paul's estate. Do you understand what that means? Absolutely. That, yeah, no question. So now the guys that, are, that were actually living properly and responsible, that were trying to help Paul, trying to help Maggie, they can sue Alec for wrongful death and the what he's caused through his actions. So we've seen lots of reports that Maggie allegedly hired a divorce attorney. And this person hasn't come forward. So I had a question in my mind, you know, now that Maggie is no longer living, would that relationship with her attorney still be protected under attorney-client privilege? Absolutely. It, it no matter what happens to your client, no matter what you're doing the rest of your life, whatever you're told through that relationship remains confidential and is a solemn part of, of the practice of law. And so mm. when you engage in it, you t- let the world know that you are somebody that can be spoken to. And if it's in seeking legal advice or seeking counsel, it doesn't go anywhere ever. Okay. So what if this person, uh, you know, has knowledge that she was fearful of her safety, they wouldn't be any uh, under any sort of obligation. 
there are just a very few exceptions, but that would be litigated. There would be a whole lot of litigation before Harputlian and Griffin would let that attorney testify to what she said in the bounds of a confidential, uh, sacred <laughs> privilege. Yeah. And I, maybe, but that's going to be a big fight if there were one. Lafitte has been indicted on federal charges. We briefly touched on that on the last episode. I know you have read through it. Is there anything that we need to know as far as the, the impact of these federal charges and how this may influence Ellick's prosecution? Again, just from the, the sheer weight of the evidence that is amassing against the people involved in these schemes, I don't think any of them will ever get out of prison again, based on what we're seeing in the indictments on both the state and federal level, plus the fact that there's a whole lot more indictments coming down the pike, I believe, from the federal side with Lafitte and you know who, whoever he testifies against and whatever evidence he provides the government at this point. All right, John Snyder, you're on vacation, so go enjoy your meal. Thank you, guys. Have a great week. Talk to you next week. Bye. All right, bye. Okay, now some listener emails and comments before we get to that you had a conversation with Alex's brother john marvin and one of the things he wanted to make clear is about where their father was the night of the murders well we just had some questions about it so i wanted to confirm that he was definitely in the hospital in savannah and he did confirm that he also said that the family was aware of the father's condition, was not good, and that he was going to be in the hospital in Savannah. Which there was that report, I believe it's People Magazine, saying that Ellick wouldn't tell Maggie where the dad was. And that, at the time, didn't make much sense to us either because that's kind of their go. When you, you have the local hospital, the people of means aren't going there in general. And we know that Savannah seems to be the place that they go. It's closer than Charleston. Yeah. So you're either going to go to Charleston or Savannah from Hampton. And if you have a serious injury, you're probably not going to go to the hospital in Hampton. Right. So it would make sense. So I don't think it's any, there would have been a mystery to Maggie as to where they were. Uh, it also shows that if they're in Savannah, the whole thing about coming home for the dinner kind of confuses how late it would be to get there. Also, John Marvin couldn't get back to see the father. Right. When he checked his father in earlier in the day, he said he, he got him in, but he didn't go back to the room. And he couldn't quite recall whether he didn't go back to the room because he wasn't allowed because of a COVID situation. He just wasn't sure. There was obviously a lot going on with the family at that time. Um, but he said once he got his father checked in, he did not go back to his father's room. So he yeah. thought that he probably would have gone back to the room if he had been allowed. Had been allowed, right. So the visiting. And that was earlier in the day. So uh, this from Carrie, I know nothing about late model Mercedes, but I, which is what Maggie had, but I do have the 2022 Hyundai Palisade calligraphy with all the bells and whistles, including an app that allows me to, among other things, start it with AC or heat cranked up, lock it, unlock it, locate it, if stolen, all from miles away, works by satellite, keeps logs of these actions. I wouldn't be surprised if the same or similar would be true for Maggie's car, and perhaps that's how... They know she left it running once they found her phone, because it does seem unlikely it would still be running by the time law enforcement arrived. Just a thought. 
By the way, latest podcast, fabulous. You and Seton are just the best and have such interesting and substantive guests. That was in each episode several times to put all you tell us to memory since I'm a web sleuth. <laughs> Thanks, Carrie. Uh, no, so I asked John Marvin about the car being running, and he said that he could confirm that that was not true, that the car was not running, but that that meant it was not running when he got there, right. but that doesn't mean these black box, I'm not really that familiar with this type of technology and fancy cars. And we don't think Maggie's car was towed. We only heard, the only report we have is one car, one vehicle being towed. That was LX SUV. That's okay. what I believe. That's what we've heard. Yes. It's, it's the, the police report is redacted so much, but that is the word we got. Yes. Also, we had a lot of questions about the father and, you know, he died several days after uh, Maggie and Paul's murders about, there's been a lot of rumors that he was back in Barnville at the time of their deaths. But I did receive confirmation that no, the father remained in the hospital in Savannah the night of Maggie and Paul's death. He did return home in the following days on hospice to die at home, but not the evening of their deaths. Well, I want to give this uh, Denise her thoughts on the dinner that we've talked about, the family dinner. She has come up with this thought that maybe Paul told John Marvin that he was doing a family dinner because he was actually going to go do something with his friends. And he just made up a story about having a family dinner. You I never have, know. I have teenagers, and I believe that could... That's a strong possibility. Yes. And um, if Blanca was there and they made dinner every night, maybe Paul just assumed there'd be a dinner. All right. So another email. Thomas, I'm not an expert, but any bird shot out of a 12-gauge shotgun is fatal. The shot holds together up to 20-plus feet, just like a slug. But I think Alec has an ace up his sleeve, and we'll all be scratching our heads in disbelief. Hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, Lucinda, has anyone checked Cousin Eddie's alibi for the time of the murders? I'm still questioning two guns and wonder if Alec took Eddie to kill Maggie, but Paul got in the way. Even if Eddie has an alibi, the two guns, the dinner was supposed to happen, and Alec not knowing Paul would be at the house are just off. I believe that if Cousin Eddie had something to do with the murders, he wouldn't be out walking around. He, he would not have that low, ba- the low bond set. Right? I mean, if, he, if they're going to charge him with murder, they can't just let him out. Well, that that is a good point. Um, I mean, right? it's so funny. I get asked almost every day what my theories are, and I can be swayed in lots of different ways. So I appreciate when people send these to us because it makes me think about a different way to look at this. Yes. And one from uh, Will. Great podcast. Love this podcast. Matt and Seton do a great job. I listen to the podcast as soon as it's available and can't wait for the next one to come out. Love the guests they bring on for expert opinions. Keep up the good work. Thank you. All right. That is, I believe, a wrap. That's it. We uh, appreciate it. And again, just reach out because we love reading your theories. And sometimes they stir something and we go check it out to see if that's possible. Uh, The Murdoch Podcast Facebook page, MurdochPodcast.com, MattHarrisPodcast at gmail.com. Anything else, Seton? We'll talk later. 
Join Hala Taha for actionable advice from the brightest minds in the world on the Young and Profiting Podcast. Author and academic Arthur Brooks on what success isn't. The husband was confessing to his wife that he might as well be dead. And I'm thinking, whoa, what's wrong with this guy? I turn around to get a look and it turns out to be one of the most famous men in the world. The world tells you that if you are profiting, money, power, pleasure, fame, you're going to be happy. And that's a bogus formula. The Young and Profiting Podcast, wherever you listen. Roller coaster prices, supply chain glitches, political unease. They do their best to wreck my business plans. With so many unknowns, how do I know I'm making the right decisions? Aon helps me stay on top of things. They have expert points of view on volatility from around the world, paired with local insight that helps me get back on solid ground. Better decisions. Aon. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Something is introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 